Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. No greater faction than the action movie scene. Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. Your satisfaction, action on the silver screen. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to the show. My name is Scott Wiley and you're listening to the Action Addicts Podcast and today we've got a special one for you. If it's your first time here, we are a podcast that talks about action movies and action television and web series, although you will struggle to find anything that actually talks about action television at the moment, but I'm working on it. We cover everything and anything, basically. If I can justify it as an action something or other, then I will probably cover it if I want to. And... We try to vary it so that we don't just talk about the same era or the same actor or even just productions from the same part of the world. Currently, we've got stuff from Hollywood, we've got stuff from Hong Kong, we've got stuff from India. Today, we're going to be talking about a film from Thailand, and in the future, we have already got some films ready and waiting for me to edit them from Korea. So, there is stuff from all over the place, and I try to keep it varied. I don't want to, you know, to be predictable. Those of you that listen to the Power Rangers Unworthy episode will know that nothing is off the table as far as I'm concerned. But with that said, what's going to happen today? Well, like I said last week, this is Tony Jaa's Ong Bak, the Thai Warrior. We're taking you back to 2003. It is an hour and 48 minutes of pure action bliss. And when this film came out, I don't think it's an understatement to say that if you are an action fan, this film was something that you were talking about. This film was something that everybody was talking about. It didn't just knock on the door and tell you it was here. Tony did a flying knee through the door and took it off its hinges and then just skated it across the floor. Mutai had had a very interesting history of being portrayed on screen, as you'll hear us talk about in a bit. Tony Jaa kind of broke a lot of preconceptions that people had about what it means to be a Thai boxer or a Thai fighter. Now, some of that is because he's using different styles to pure Muay Thai, like he's using different variations and older variations, which actually makes him very fun to watch. But also, he's a very speedy, quick guy, and he's got a lot of stamina, and he's able to pull off these acrobatic movements and do a lot of parkour stuff, which was very much coming into its own around that point in time. And he was doing things that was not what most people think of when they think of Muay Thai. They tend to think of these big, massive beasts that would either be the final fight in, say, a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, or they would think of, like, Sagat from Street Fighter, who, again, is this massive, over-six-foot-six guy whose kicks and legs are the size of tree trunks, and it's slow, it's brutish, and fighting it, you know, is, is near impossible. Now... Actual Mutai isn't really like that. It has that element to it, even if you're not a gigantic guy. It is ultimately a very brutal martial art, but like all martial arts, there is art to it, and it can be a beautiful thing. It really does depend. Are you somebody that's going to be a friend or a foe, and you'll have a very different experience of what it's like to be a Thai practitioner? And with that said, my guest for this week is Jeff Vita, who I said last week I'm very excited to have here. He is the host of the Kung Fu Drive-In podcast, a show that I have been listening to, well, I would say forever. I mean, I'm actually pretty sure that I've been listening to it since its first year, and I don't think I even realized that. I thought this guy had been going since 
years and years and years, but when I actually tried to figure out when I started listening to him, I think I actually started listening to him when he started. So I have kind of been there from day one with this guy, and I never thought that I would actually have the opportunity to have one of the people that I've always listened to, always respected, always admired, actually coming onto the show from long before I had my own show. You know, the people that we've had on, every single guest has been fantastic. I always say this to people, it doesn't matter if you're an expert or a complete novice, your perspective still matters, your opinion and your voice still deserves to be heard, and it can give some great conversation, especially if you're coming on to talk about what you thought about a specific film. There are no wrong answers, in my opinion. You can give me some weird-ass opinions, but they're not wrong opinions. <laughs> Jeff was obviously very excited to talk about such a genre-defining film, and I think you're going to enjoy our conversation, so that is enough. Garbling from me, I'm going to throw you over so that we can give you our pre-recorded talk. And if this is your first time here and you didn't listen to last week's episode on Sylvester Stallone's Cobra... I will just stress that I'm not currently here right now, so this has all been kind of bulk recorded in advance, so if there's some slight disconnect or repetition when I cut over to the original conversation, apologies, I haven't edited this yet, I'm trying to record tons of stuff so that I can edit it whilst I'm away. But with that said, let me throw you over. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are here, we are live, back in the room. And, as you will have probably seen, if you're paying attention to the title of this episode, or listen to me in the preceding intro that I will have recorded before I did this, we have yet another new guest today. And I'm very excited about this one, because this is someone that I have personally listened to for a very long time. He is probably someone that you know if you listen to my show or any of the other shows that uh, tend to come on and chat with me. But we are joined by a very special guest, Jeff, of the Kung Fu Drive-In Podcast. So would you like to introduce yourself for anyone who might be unfamiliar with you, my friend? Thank you, Scott. First, let me say thank you for uh, having me on the show. Uh, we've had conversations before, so it's great to be able to uh, join you and uh, talk action and martial arts films with you. But uh, yeah, my name is Jeff Vita. I'm the host and creator of the Kung Fu Drive-In Podcast. Uh, it's a little show that started way back in uh, 2016, and I cover the martial arts cinema that uh, uh, impacted me as a youth uh, from the Shaw Brothers to Golden Harvest uh, on to today's uh, actioners like uh, John Wick and Jason Bourne and all that stuff. Uh, anything that covers martial arts and action films, uh, particularly with regards to stunt coordinators and fight coordinators, those are the guys that I have on um, that uh, incorporate martial arts into their incredible actions. So if you watch anything uh, on TV or film like Into the Badlands or Warrior, anything like that that uh, incorporates martial arts into the action uh, and really spotlights the contributions of stunt professionals uh, and fight coordinators and, and actors that like to uh, perform their own stunts. Chances are I've had them on the show. Uh, I love those guys. I love uh, the, the guys and gals that uh, bring all of that stuff to life for all, all of us action fans. So, uh, uh, Scott is a, an aficionado himself, so thank you for having me on, but it's great to be able to talk with you. No, man. I mean, like we were just saying before before I hit record, I've been genuinely listening to your show for a very long time. It's actually funny because I was just listening to you and you said, oh, yeah, it started in 2016. And my dumb brain went, no, 
it must have been earlier than that. And then I remember, oh no, it's 2023. It's it's like 20, 20, <laughs> 20, 2016 wasn't a few years ago anymore. This is so. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not young, so. <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, I must say, if if people somehow haven't listened to your show, I would highly recommend it. While I do enjoy listening to you talking about films in general, like you say, the fact that you've been highlighting the choreographers, the stunt people, that is definitely what drew me to the show. Like you interviewed so many people that probably wouldn't get highlighted, especially at that point in time. Otherwise, um, the the one that always stuck out for me is that. Uh, 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 this is when you say you've never interviewed him, and I've imagined this whole conversation, but I'm pretty sure I'm right on this. Uh, you interviewed uh, Sonny Sisson, and yeah, like that one, yeah. when, when I saw that come up, it was like, it jumped the queue. It was like I sat down, well, I didn't actually, I walked around, but I, I went for a walk and I listened to the whole thing in one go, because I was like, never thought I'd see Sonny come up in, in someone's chat, partly because trying to get hold of some of these people is like drawing blood from a stone, but also because you know it's not the it's not the glamorous part of the industry that everybody likes to cover but for those who are unfamiliar with sonny i immediately knew him because of his association with broken path and koichi sakamoto and a fantastic fight scene he had with johnny young bosch but then he obviously did by bus and his career has kind of moved to places and i loved hearing him talk about like working with the marvel dudes on the iron fist show and some of the other stuff he'd done and i just thought like this is why I like listening to these types of shows, because, yes, there are probably other shows that do something similar, but they're going to be trying to, like, get, say, the people that made the raid on because that's what's popular at the time. Like, once the trend has gone again, they're not interested in covering action films, whereas people like yourself and a few other friends of mine, it's like, nope, this is the thing that we like. This is what we're passionate about. So we're going to keep it going, even when. It's not the current popular topic of the day. Yeah, thanks. And uh, I mean, Sonny is great. He's gonna he, he'll be back on the show um, to talk about more stuff. But uh, but yeah, like those guys, uh, it's it's always it's always funny to me to talk with these guys and and give them uh, the spotlight that they so richly deserve because I get lost in those conversations. We're like, man, just just tell me more. Tell me more about what you do and tell me more about how you do it. And, and then um, when I tell people that uh, I talk to. Like you guys like Sonny and, and I'm so excited about it. They're like, um, I don't know who that is necessarily. And I'm not saying that about Sonny specifically, but you know, then, <laughs> then I'm like, well, all right, it doesn't matter. But if, if you like the action in, in, in by boss, uh, that was him, you know, that kind of thing. So if, if you watch any uh, power Rangers back in the nineties, uh, chances are you saw some of his work or things like that. So the, these guys do so much, uh, behind the scenes, uh, and all the action that we enjoy on screen. You know, that's the the choreographers and and the stunt guys and the and the uh, coordinators that are putting that all together. Because the actors, while they're amazing and and some of them do all of their own work, uh, chances are you're not watching, uh, you're you're not appreciating all the crazy stuff that goes on screen with those actors doing that stuff because Hollywood has to protect their investments, right? So, um, it's that's when the stunt people come in and the stunt coordinators do their magic and, um. Yeah, it's it's so it's so good to hear uh, what they go through to to bring that to life for us. Yeah, no, I agree. And also, even if you are, uh, even if you even if you are listening to an actor that does his own stuff, which I'm always hesitant to believe. The the <laughs> more 
you learn about the industry, the more unlikely you know that really is. Um, but also, even if they're like, oh, yeah, I do all my own stuff. It's like, well, that might be true. You might have performed the motion, but somebody else did the choreography. Somebody else did the previs. A bunch of different people came together and actually mapped this scene out of how you're going to shoot it, film it, and, well, edit it. But that usually gets ignored. But we won't go into that. And, you know, even when you get these people that are like, yeah, man, I, I do all my stuff. Unless it's like a low budget film where it's a very different working environment. If you're talking about A-listers, yeah, I don't, I don't really care anymore. <laughs> like, because it's like, it's not really you. It's like, you know what I mean? It's, it's a team effort. Sure. And I think in all honesty, that's why somebody, because you mentioned John Wick, I think that's why Keanu gets the love and respect from everybody because he will happily and has done so so many times correct talk show interviewers when they try and tell him that he does his own stunts and he's like no i don't right right he's like i perform my own action but i don't do my own stunts and i'm only doing the work that somebody else has laid out like if if more performers were like that and highlighted and uplifted the actual stunt people that make them stars i feel like we be in a better place. <laughs> yeah, uh, what, ha what I'm trying to remember who it was that recently did that at, at a major award show. I think it was Brie Larson. Uh, she called up uh, the money makers, um, Heidi and Renee, uh, and and called them out specifically and brought them on stage. I think just to highlight their contributions to to her work on I think Captain Marvel at the time. But uh, it, it, yeah, it, uh, agreed. It's always cool when when the actors you know give their respect to the stunt people that uh, that cover them in in those those more harrowing situations and with all of that said let's now dive into an industry and a film where 90 percent of what we just said doesn't actually apply. yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> so uh the film that we're actually going to be talking about today is ong back now i had to kind of remind myself how old this film is and i i hate saying that because it's like 2003 wasn't that old but my brain didn't even think it was 2003. I thought it was like 2005, 2006. And then I realized I'm getting it confused with the protector. So that was the first moment where I had to sort of correct my brain. And uh, yeah, man, I, I don't think I can put into words how much of an impact this film had when it came out. Not necessarily with mainstream audiences, but with the action industry internationally. This film was seen by everybody, and from the moment it came out, people started imitating it. For a while, Ong Bak and the Muay Thai style with the hard hits that was, in my opinion, perfected with The Protector, but it definitely was Ong Bak that, that set the precedent. Everybody was like, this is how we're going to shoot action now. You know, it's like, it's going to be hard hitting, it's going to be much more impactful, and every hit is going to make you wince. And... For a while, that is kind of what happened. Yeah, so this is a 20-year-old movie now, right? <laughs> it's crazy. I know. But yeah, when when Ong Bak came out, it was absolutely something that uh, that took action fans uh, and, and made them pay attention, right? It was it was Muay Thai or, or Muay Baran on screen. And for, for a lot of people, it, it was Paulo Toka that was the, uh, the face of Muay Thai uh, prior to that, you know, uh, with uh, with Bloodsport, so when Tony Jaa put it up on screen and, and did these amazing things with with uh, with the elbows and and the knees and and the the crazy speed with which he did things, 
man, we were like, what are we looking at? It was completely, it, you know, it's a complete breath of fresh air for, for action fans. Well, also, I feel like the example you just gave of what people were familiar with when it comes to the term of Mutai, in a lot of popular media, whether it be films or even video games, the Mutai fighters are usually giants, which yeah. is definitely something that we have to kind of blame Bloodsport for. But it's that annoying moment where Mutai was sort of looked at as the big, brutish, like, big swings, elbows, and leg strikes. And it, and it is. But what I liked about Tony Jaa's stuff is he isn't a giant man. He is very muscular and he's in very good shape, but it's still Mutai and it still demonstrates how you can adapt the style to fit you. And I, I love the fact, especially with Ong Bak, is as violent as it does get, his character tries to keep the actual spirit of the art and the martial arts alive. And considering the type of film that this is, which in reality isn't particularly new or groundbreaking, that in and of itself was also quite refreshing because I feel like, especially in the early 2000s, everything had really started to lean into the over-the-top violence from the 90s. The spectacle was still very much the thing. And it was almost more refreshing to see a character that was actually kind of honorable and likable rather than someone that could just beat someone up in one punch. Yeah, he, he always looked so cool uh, in, in the film, like so collected and so calm. Uh, even as he was is cracking, um, and yeah, his uh, his presence was so strong on screen um, as a representative of, of Muay Thai. It, it was it was just so cool to watch him and and see this new interpretation from him. No, I I hundred percent agree. So I tend to ask this question though. I think I already know what your answer is going to be. But do you remember the first time you watched this film? Like, was it in 2003? And, and what did, well, like, what was your gut reaction when you did? Uh, I definitely did not see it in the theaters. I'm trying to remember where exactly I did see it, but um, it was not in 2003. It was, it, well, I mean, it might've been in 2003, but I can't remember where exactly I saw it. Um, the, the reaction was, oh my God, we got to see that again. And uh, like a lot of action films, um, when you see something new and it's interpreted so in in such a refreshing way um the 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 instinct was to find out more about the martial art and and see if you could imitate the moves and and uh and uh get all kinds of other reference because uh, up to that like i said up to that point um like you said muay thai was was kind of brutish and it was uh all, the all that i had seen of it uh was uh in in films like bloodsport and kickboxer so it I, w I wasn't even sure if it was the same style because it looked so different and he wielded it so differently so it, it was a lot of uh instant deep diving into uh the martial art to see uh if if this really was muay thai if it was some kind of new martial art so it, it was it's one of those inspirational moments where you're like oh man I, I gotta find out more about this and find out more about this guy and and has he done other films and is he going to do more of this uh so it it's that spark where you're like let's go see what this is all about yeah, no, I agree. I don't see uh, much like you. My recollection of exact timings during this period is kind of sketchy, but I know for a fact I didn't see this in 2003. I think I came to Tony Jaa later than a lot of people. I saw bits of this film because, again, you've got to set the stage for people listening. <laughs> you got to take your minds back to 
This is before YouTube. Yep. This is yep. before the internet is what it is now. So the only way that I would see these sorts of films is if my local supermarket had them in the one shelf reserved for basically direct-to-DVD movies of the action type. But that would also be where they would chuck in the foreign films because I guess they didn't know what to do with them is the honest truth. But I, I don't remember seeing Ong back there until after The Protector came out. And I, I'm wondering if, because again, I'm being in the UK and being where I lived at the time was down in the South. I, I've got a, a sneaking suspicion that Ong Bak got like a re-release when The Protector came out because suddenly Tony Jaa was like the hot yeah, new thing. Yeah. And all the markets went, hey, don't we have some other films of his we could just put right back out and get some more money, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I I remember everybody in my college went loopy because uh, there was one kid in particular, and I'm going to get to this in a minute because we've addressed the Muay aspect of this. But he was a massive free runner and a parkour enthusiast. And obviously, well, especially rewatching this film, it actually kind of hit me how much parkour is kind of incorporated into yeah. his movements. And again, for people that maybe weren't around at the time or, or were too young to remember, parkour really kind of just came out of nowhere in inverted commas. It didn't, but that's what it felt like. And all of a sudden, everybody just decided that their fun hobby was to just run alongside dangerous buildings and see if you could make a jump that would probably severely injure you. <laughs> and this is one of those films that kind of started that craze. <laughs> yeah, like like you, I, I did a rewatch of this reason because I had not seen it, I'm going to say, in about probably like 10 years. <laughs> so after watching it and, and watching clips of it and uh, checking it out all out again, I'm like, man, there there was so much here that highlighted uh, or, or that presaged a lot of the stuff that blew up in the mid 2000s and and uh when, you know once youtube really took over a lot of that stuff that um dominated youtube channels uh a lot of it was done here on screen for a super low budget by tony jaws great to see yeah i mean at the time of recording because i don't know exactly where this episode is going to come out timeline wise but we recently had our art school dropouts episode release. And in that, me and Joey were talking about the influences and the trends and what people kind of chased in the industry. I said to him, because we were talking about the fact that Shang-Chi has kind of brought Wuzir and Kung Fu back into the popular sort of psyche. And I said, well, before that, it was all Salat and Eskrima, or Eskrima, sorry, because of the raid films and all of the, you know, the sort of similar films that came out along those lines. And they had to be that sort of style to be hard hitting. I mean, you literally had those guys pop it up in John Wick. And prior to that, it was the MMA craze that seemed to really take hold a few years later after Ong Bak. But almost running parallel to that, Ong Bak was, and, and the protector, but like the Tony Jaa style, as it was kind of known after a while, it really was the predecessor, the one that the raid essentially just kind of replaced. Yes, you also had the idiots over there doing their 17 cuts to climb a fence in, in the Western <laughs> big budget films. But, you know, for the 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 diehard action filmmakers that were stuck in direct-to-DVD budgets and eventually direct-to-streaming where they got a bit more, it really did feel like the, the, the follow-through line after the 90s was on back undisputed two and then those two films kind of combined their styles for a bit until the raid came out 
and then it all kind of changed again and now we're kind of going through a change again when the john wick films came out and i do find it fascinating going back and and watching these highly influential films and going they nailed it like this like you said the parkour the high impact uh wide angled shots that everybody's losing their minds over that they do in John Wick, which in reality is just aping what they did in the eighties in Hong Kong. But the fact that you can see this sort of echoes of films to come, but also films of the past. And like you said, this was a tiny little film that they did in Thailand. And it was just basically all of them going, let's make a film, which is pretty much how the raid came together. (laughs) So again, it's like, you know, I I don't know. It's like, never doubt that, a handful of people can have a massive impact on the rest of the world because whenever you look into these things nine times out of ten that's what it all boils down to it's never actually like a big studio that does these things it's always the passion of the the true believers you know yeah well you know when when you deal with the big studios there's so many uh hot uh so many hands involved in in trying to to sell this right so uh a, a lot of what the art is trying to convey will get lost in that. So when you when you have somebody like Tony Jaa and his crew putting this together, they're showcasing the stuff that uh, that matters to them uh, without having to deal with all that Hollywood bureaucracy, right? So um, he wanted to highlight Muay Thai and Muay Baran, and uh, and and they did it in a way that really shined a, a brilliant spotlight on it. And uh, you know whether it whether it be budget restrictions or or you know um, uh, or just the equipment that they had, they were able to get some amazing angles and 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 showcase that action in in a way that no one had ever seen before. Because that's not how Hollywood thinks. Uh, and man, you can play any clip from Ong Bak now and, and see the way that it it impacted the industry uh, today. Yeah, hundred percent. And like you say, the fact that Tony Jaa actually went and trained in Moi Baran for four years, which, you know, is it was kind of, in my opinion, a dead style because it is Mutai's predecessor. But the fact that he went and trained in it so that he could more, not accurately, that's not the word I want. What's the word I want? Anyway, we'll go with accurately. But he could more accurately represent the character that he was trying to play. And the fact that um, when he does the hand wrap, it's one of those things where they were saying uh, when I was doing my research that the style of Moi Baran that he's doing is Moi Karat because of the way that mm. they do the tight ropes up to the elbow. And again, it's those little bits of attention to detail that I feel like gives this character in this film and what would eventually become this franchise, which is a tale for another time. But it gives that so much more character and identity than just if I was to describe the plot to someone because... Yes, the official description of the plot is that he has to go and rescue the, you know, go and get the honor of his village back or something like that. But in reality, it's just a it's just a revenge film with a tournament bit shoved in. <laughs> it's, you know, it, 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 the, talking about the story of this film, I will. But let's not mince words here. They knew what they wanted to focus on. And it yeah. was the amazing fights and the charisma of Tony Jaa's performance. The actual story was just an excuse to get to those moments. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It, it, it's not um, a, any kind of uh, novel story at, at all. I mean, in fact, if you try to, to uh, pitch that story uh, anywhere, Hollywood will laugh you out the door. <laughs> I mean, I think the funny thing is, though, is that if you were to walk into a Hollywood office and pitch them 
Ong back. And then when they laugh you out the door, go, no, 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 no. It's okay, though. I've got another one. What if instead it's a guy trying to rescue his elephant? Right, right, right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, again, it's just uh, it's just so funny to... I, I, I don't know how you'd ever get this stuff made unless it is literally just everybody involved, like you say, wants to do it. Uh, the funniest thing that I read, and I assume it's true, but it's just one of those things that I've read and I've had to reread it about three times. But allegedly, prior to the film's release in the West, somehow Steven Seagal saw this before it had its Western release. And he loved it so much that he wanted to buy the film and release it through his production company with a caveat that he was going to add in more scenes where he was going to play Tony Jaa's instructor and basically take all the credit for how good Tony Jaa is, which sounds so much like something Steven Seagal would do. I want it to be true. <laughs> oh, that sounds insane. I've never heard that. That's absolutely insane. Yeah, I know, but it just doesn't surprise me in the slightest. I have kind of hinted at this before on the show, and I'm going to hint even more now. Uh, I do not have kind things to say about Steven Seagal, which is why I haven't decided if I'll ever cover any of his movies, because he does have a few that I would like to, but I will not be praising him if I do. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I uh, am, he's such an intriguing character. I, I, I agree with you on, on all of that. I can't help but wonder what a conversation with him would be like just to see how his, to me, warped mind works. So, you know, we'll see. Well, I, I feel like Scott Adkins somehow managed to, to convince him to be on the art of action. And his answers to some of his questions and his versions of like well-known stories was everything I expected and more because it was basically... Everything you've heard is a lie. I'm yeah. going to tell you the truth now. And it's like, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't believe you. <laughs> yeah, I'll pass on the believing that too. <laughs> anyway, uh, so yeah, that's just a funny bit of information that I just thought was hilarious. But um, Ongbak itself, uh, like we said, it's a pretty standard, not revenge story, but it is kind of a really long setup to a tournament movie. But I think what makes it work for me is they very smartly realize that in order for you to really empathize with Ting, the character that Tony Jaa is playing, he doesn't actually want to compete, which yeah. instantly makes him different from most of the tournament movies that came out in the 80s and the 90s, because even when he's kind of forced to do it, he still tries to not do it. And whilst, yes, there are examples of that happening beforehand, the fact that they go out of their way to establish that he does have the ability to demolish pretty much anyone that gets in his way, unless you really, really, really give him a reason to. And there's a couple points of the film where even when they do, he still doesn't. Like the, the scene where that guy gets beat up and then the woman gets attacked and he still doesn't jump into the ring because he knows that they're doing it to get to him. I can't think of many other films where the main character would just sort of stand there and be like trapped in, in, in like, do I help or not? Because he knows he shouldn't. And I found that so much more compelling when he finally did let loose, as opposed to some other films where they try and do the same thing, but within five minutes, they've already just made peace with it and they're just going all in and attacking mode, you know? 
Yeah, he's definitely the reluctant hero, and they set it up early in the film when uh, when he's uh, his his one of his instructors comes to him and says, you know, now you have all of this power. I'm just asking you not to use it, you know, never to use it. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it, he's the the one that we identify with as as the viewer, and um, we want him to succeed in his quest to return the statue to his uh, to his hometown. You know, as action fans, we want to be able to see uh, how he's going to break it all out. And when he does break it out in situations where he has to, man, he breaks it out in, in such a way that is uh, sudden and impactful and uh, not necessarily with any kind of buildup either. All of a sudden, you just got this this kick out of nowhere and it just flattens the opponent, but it also flattens you as a viewer because you're like, where did that come from? Uh, and can we see it again soon? You know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because that's that's against the 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 guy calling himself Pearl Harbor for some reason, and uh, <laughs> right. that leg just thumps the front of his head and he goes down, and everybody's just left stunned. And I feel like that has become such a a power move in films that would come after Ong Back now, because Jet Li did it in Unleashed, uh, Michael Jai White did it in Blood and Bone. You know, there's so many other films of a similar nature that have taken that idea of I'm going to end the fight in one move yeah. faster than yeah. people even realize it started. But I definitely feel like everybody was imitating Tony Jaa when they did that. Yeah, you know, uh, prior to that, you'll get that buildup where, you know, uh, they'll um, they'll square off and they'll they'll walk around each other and uh, they'll exchange a few jabs or whatever just to set it up and then the, the buildup to, to the knockout. But uh, when Tony Jaa did this, it's like, all right, here we are. I, I don't have time for this. I don't want to do this. Pow, it's over. Let me go finish my business. You're like, wait, what just happened? Yeah. Yeah. And and what I like about it from an acting point of view, it's Tony Jar sells the, what I would call the switch flipping, where he can see that this is going to happen. So he immediately acts, knocks the guy out, and then immediately just takes himself out of aggression mode yep. and just walks away. There's no ego there's no one-liner he's not doing this to try and prove a point he's not trying to out machismo the other guy it's he was gonna punch me in the face so i knocked him out and <laughs> i'm going over here now it was like you know it's just a, a a means to an end for him and i think that makes him different from so many other martial art movie stars yeah the uh the way that he continues on mission and uh just has to do what he has to do to get to the next uh, stage is what's so appealing about him because he's so unassuming as a character. Uh, and when he breaks those things out, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge wake-up call. But he, then, you know, later on, as we go through this, uh, when even when he's doing things like running away, he makes it as uh, dynamic as possible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because uh, his two side characters which I, I hate that term but that's that's what they are but the two side characters his supporting cast uh hum Lei or george and moi lek they 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 have their own little story which i really enjoyed as well but the fact that you have this conflict in hum Lei, whether or not he's you know cares about the village because he clearly doesn't in the beginning right. and that really annoys ting but i like this aspect because in so many films of a similar nature where a guy from a small town village in the middle of nowhere comes to the big city, finds a guy, and then the guy takes advantage of him. And I feel like there was a temptation, because there, there often is, where, well, 
I'm a big city guy, so anybody that doesn't live in a city would just be instantly picked apart um, if someone from the outside came in. And they kind of set that up here. But when Ting knocks out that guy, and then George runs over to him, and then he turns down the prize money, and then they're like, yeah, uh, I'm not buying it anymore, George. And he just completely sort of disowns him. And I loved that because it showed that just because he is lost in a big city where he doesn't know his way, like a lot of people would be, he's not an idiot. Right, he's, right. you know, he, and, and I feel like so many films wouldn't do that. It's like he can take care of himself. You need him, not the other way around. All he needed you for was to be a guide, but it'll take him longer, but he can still, as you said, complete his mission. He's going to stay on task. And later on, when he sort of runs into them again, and George is getting his ass kicked, he just sort of looks at him like, yeah, that's about right, and then walks away. The only reason he comes back and saves them is because the guys then start attacking Moy. Right. And that, understandably, triggers him because he's like, okay, George getting his ass kicked because he's kind of a not the nicest of people is fine, but attacking her is a step too far. And then he jumps in and dismantles them. And then, like you say, that leads to the big parkour running sequence because they come back with about 50 people and even uh, even ting and all of his glory isn't just gonna run headfirst into them <laughs> yeah and it, what's cool about that scene um if you watch that scene again when he hops in to protect the girl he doesn't go in and just start swinging and trying to destroy these guys um it, it's funny because he his first move is just to push the guy away. And then even then, as the fight goes on, he's, he evades and does these, does these moves to step out of the conflict, if at all possible. And only when they press does he start to, does, does he start to throw fists and, and start laying them out? Yeah, no, I mean, the way he was weaving around their punches, it made me think of like when you see a really like top of his game boxer and they can just like yep, essentially yep. dance around their opponent. And that's exactly what it looked like. He was happy to just keep pushing them away and let themselves tie themselves out because in his brain, it's like, well, there's only three of them and they're not a threat. There's no point <laughs> in smashing my elbow and breaking their nose because what would that achieve? And I, it's a, like you say, it's only as the film goes on, he only escalates because he's backed into a corner. And even later in the same scene, when he is backed into a corner and you think, oh, okay, this is building up to the moment where he's actually going to cut loose and we're going to see him take apart everybody it was like a few moves he doesn't he right. the acrobatic git that he is somehow manages to jump onto their shoulders and literally runs over them and again i will add folks there isn't a stunt guy for tony in this film and there's no wires or cgi in this film and he jumps stupidly high in this film like there's a few shots where i genuinely had to rewind and go did i miss something then <laughs> yeah we, we we uh at the beginning of the show we had we were just talking about all the guys that that step in for for the actors but yeah tony jaw had no stunt guy for this every bit of action that you see in this film he and his crew uh did for the uh for the movie and it's uh it boggles the mind the control that he has over his own body to be able to do some of the things that he did in this film, just jumping and you know jumping over guys and, and running on them to to get uh, to cross some distance um, is incredibly hard, and he he does it with such ease and, and such dynamism that it it requires multiple viewings just to see if there actually are no wires in this. 
he does this whole sequence where he runs over tables uh, and and jumps uh, over the things on top of the tables with with no problems whatsoever. If any one of us tries to jump on a table and do what he does, that table is rocking, things are falling, and uh, you know, and we're more than uh, more likely than not hurting ourselves really badly. But the amazing thing about this is everything stays completely still that he makes contact with. And he jumps and clears everything without any issues. It, if you watch it over and over again, it still doesn't make sense that there's there's no wires involved. No, I agree. Uh, my, my only thought was that some of the tables are like stuck to the ground sure, to, sure. to prevent them from swinging. But then I know it's probably with the power of editing, but then literally like a second later, the bit that makes the scene so good for me is it could just be a demonstration of Ting's skills of Tony Jaa's skills but you also have George stroke Humley coming up behind him and essentially trying to mimic everything he does and then it doesn't work for him <laughs> and and you know some of them are funnier than others but I think it was a great way of demonstrating that like even even though he's just watched Tony Jaa do it and he's like oh yeah okay I see how to do this he tries it doesn't work because like you said he doesn't have that same level of control over his body and when he tries to do it, other stuff kind of gets in his way. Like my favorite one is when he, you know, Tony Jaa comes up to this great big ream of barbed wire, which in and of itself, I'm like, I wouldn't even try that even if I had that level of control. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, and Tony just manages to jump straight through it. But uh, I can't remember my parkour terminology was left in the early 2000s, but he manages to essentially fold his front legs up and put his arms forward so that he goes through with all four limbs pointing forward, which is like so like iconically a parkour thing before it was really a thing. And then Humley tries to dive through it, which he does. But as he dives through it, someone comes along with a bucket right, and he ends right. up just smashing headfirst into the bucket, which I laughed way more at that scene <laughs> than I probably should have. Cause it's just, I'd forgotten it. And it was just so unexpected because like you, it had been years since I'd seen this. It's it's one of those weird ones that I've had on DVD forever, and yet it's probably got the least amount of rewatches. And I think it's because the fights were so good at their time that they've stayed with me that I've never felt the need to rewatch it because yeah, I feel like yeah. I remember it. And it, it sort of tricks you because it's like you forget all the stuff around it, like all of the funny stuff, because there's a lot of humor in this film as well, like I said. Yep. George is almost the comedy relief that messes up everything that uh, Ting does really, really well. And I can 100% see, like, because in, in that same scene, I think he climbs up some scaffolding and then he, like, flips over some fences. He does a wall run and then he does a wall climb. And my brain even did the same thing that I remember so many critics did at the time, which was, I can see now, or rather I can remember now, why at the time... Everybody was saying Tony Jaa is the new Jackie Chan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the um, that barbed wire scene too. I think there are there are bloopers of that scene online, uh, which are also cool to watch. But uh, yeah, he 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 folds himself into a, like a, a jackknife uh, and just pops through that. Um, that particular scene stuck with me for a long time because I was like, are you even? I wasn't even sure that the body could do that at that speed for him to propel himself through that through that ring of wire. Uh, and um, that's one of the scenes that uh, always uh, stuck with me uh, long after watching this film. 
Um, and then, yeah, uh, George uh, hops through that and then gets caught in the bucket. Very funny scene. But uh, again, it, it's just uh, a testament to the ridiculous control that, that Jaw had at the time to be able to make his body do things that just seemed physically impossible. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, like I said, that whole sequence feels like it was ripped out of a Jackie Chan movie that we never saw. And the fact that they originally wanted Tony to play Jackie's brother in Rush Hour 3, I kind of, as time had gone on, forgotten how much he was thought of as the next Chan. And rewatching this, as it just brought all of that sort of, that period in time came rushing back into my brain. And I was like, oh yeah, I remember now why everyone I knew was obsessed with Tony Jaa that liked movies, liked acrobatics or martial arts. Because he, you know, I think now trying to sort of sell it to somebody who's younger, it yeah. doesn't really work. But he genuinely was. Like, all the people were like, oh yeah, it doesn't matter who you like. I like Tony Jaa. And he's like this underground guy <laughs> that you've not heard of. And it, it was that sort of secret club that you were a part of. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, what was was uh, was interesting, too, about that was that... Uh, while the comparisons to Jackie Chan were uh, were plentiful, there was such a contrast with uh, the the tournament uh, part of this film uh, for Tony because that really showcased that power uh, and and speed um, that you don't necessarily get from from the Jackie Chan films because he doesn't highlight that part of it uh, as much. But man, when Tony Jaa is fighting, though the way that they shot it with the the impacts again so memorable and left such a such a an impression uh, on martial arts fans that um you i think at at one point you're like yeah he 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 does have all that jackie chan stuff but then look at this i mean look at this yeah no a hundred percent i mean at this point both in the film and in and in the timeline of the time period that we're talking about you then get him fighting three different types of fighters in a row. You get the the original guy, I think his name's Big Bear, and he is like every stereotypical foreign bad guy in Asian films combined. He's stupidly tall, he's nothing but muscles, he has no real finesse in his fighting style, and when Tony Jaa won't fight him, he immediately starts throwing out racism saying that Thai people are weak, saying that Mu Thai is weak, and then he's the one that attacks this other guy that tries to step to him, and then he goes after the girl. And then when we do finally see Tony Jaa step up to him, compared to everything else we've seen in the film at that point, what follows isn't so much of a fight as it is just Tony Jaa beating the guy up. <laughs> and it is so brutal. And it's relatively quick. Not as quick as the, the first time where it was over in one punch. But then when he tries to leave, the crowd are just not on his side. There's people with guns keeping him in. And then he has to fight a guy that I'm still torn on whether or not I enjoyed. But it was a guy quite clearly aping Bruce Lee's stick. And right, uh, right. I felt like that that was, to me at least, it kind of felt like they were playing the Bruce Lee-ishness for laughs, which I wasn't sold on but i'm like the actual fight was really good and he did keep himself in the fight really well and again compared to the first guy that was all brute strength the jeet kundo fighter had a lot more flexibility and speed so it allowed you to show a different aspect of how skilled ting is and then the last guy mad dog who clearly apparently gets reincarnated as someone in the raid later in life 
<laughs> he 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 was basically the 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 unhonorable fighter. He throws chairs at him. He smashes a table. He tries to like uh, trick him at the very beginning and breaks a bottle over his head, which does nothing because Tony Jaa's head is like a you know a steel stone uh, hardened surface. Because the amount of people that kick him in the head and he just sort of stands there <laughs> and takes it. But it, it, like you say, every single fight he amps up how brutal he gets because the, the last guy, Mad Dog, he he gets absolutely destroyed. Don't get me wrong, I mean, he forces the issue because it's super obvious he can't match him in terms of actual skill. So he's constantly cheating. Like he picks up a fridge at one point and tries to use that <laughs> as a weapon, which <laughs> which sounds as ludicrous as it is to see. And it also backfires on him because Tony Jar ends up just sending him through a wall with the fridge instead. And I thought that was like the end. I was like, wow, I've, I don't think I've seen a fridge so expertly used in a fight before to send some guy through the wall. But that's not the end. It keeps going. Then they end up upstairs and then uh, he gets like stabbed and that still isn't enough to stop him. And then Tony Jaa kicks him or throws him through a window and jumps down with him and lands on his feet and just like <laughs> takes the full force of the impact like this is nothing. And the guy's now out and like the crowd is just dead silent. And I feel like that was the audience too at the time. It was like, what did we just watch? Because... Yeah. The thing that I I feel like is really difficult to convey is every hit feels real in this film and in a lot of other ones that Tony Jaa did around this time because it was his team that, that very much pioneered the hard impact style of we're going to just boot each other in the face. Now, they're not actually doing that. There's actually a lot of clever stuff going on in order to simulate that effect. One of which is the fact that many of the people that he's hitting the reason why they have such wild hair is because they're actually hiding pads underneath the <laughs> hair that they're wearing so that he can kick them in the side of the head very, very hard. And they're not just going to immediately have to be rushed to hospital with concussion, which as, as solutions go, it's a pretty decent one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, again, the control that Tony displays you know, is, is all part of of what sells all, all of these impacts because uh, I, I have no doubt that he can pull just enough to you know to make sure that he doesn't kill <laughs> kill you right but um the the other amazing thing about watching him uh work is not just the impact uh, of when he's fighting but when he stops he stops and uh, holds for just a half second um so dynamically if that if that's the correct way to put it that you're like man that looked so cool just him staying there after delivering that punch and it, he again he he moves so well and so in, in such a controlled fashion uh that he delivers uh, the kicks and the punches and then he slaps his you know he'll, he'll slap his foot down and he'll just stand there again for just a half second on screen but you're like dude that's that's just all hero right there uh, you know and then uh when he is throwing a kick, it looks like he's flying. Uh, and again, there's no no uh, wires in this film, but it seems impossible the the distance that he covers and the the amount of time that he holds himself in the air to deliver that knee. And then when he lands, again, he lands in this hero pose, and you're like, dude, how cool is this guy? Oh yeah, I feel like that's definitely a product of its time. Like 
This is something that changed as the years went on. I feel like it has now slowly started to creep its way back in, but it's been absent for a long time, which is the main character flawlessly defeating his opponent, but looking cool while he does it. <laughs> it's kind of something that used to be synonymous with action films, but I feel like because they got such a bad rap, well, they still kind of do, but because they had such a bad rap for a while, some people tried to change it, and that kind of became the style where you you weren't supposed to do that. You weren't supposed to look cool. And like, you know, MMA kind of changed as well because people suddenly wanted everything to be realistic. And the thing is, again, like we've both said, this is Tony Jaa. What you see on screen is what he was physically capable of doing because he did it. There's yeah, no wire yeah. works. There's no double. And when he does these massive flying knee strikes or these elbow strikes or these spinning kicks because he's so acrobatic like that's the bit that i i feel like a lot of people who would only be familiar with tony Jaa because of his american films or appearances in films that are more mainstream yes you do still see him do a lot of fighting but they very rarely utilize how acrobatic he is now obviously it's also because he's probably like 15 years older but <laughs> uh you know it's one of those things where seeing what he was capable of at the time and just seeing the sheer amount of speed, power, and control he had, you do have to consciously remind yourself that this isn't visual effects, this isn't wire work, because your brain automatically just goes, well, clearly he didn't actually jump out of a window, strike a guy <laughs> whilst he's still falling, and then land perfectly. It's like, but he did! <laughs> now he's a, it, he's a... Yeah, now he's, he's super... Um, super uh th again the control is just amazing it's so amazing just to to watch him do what he, he does uh and yeah that that whole um indestructible hero thing uh definitely went went out of uh, uh fashion for a while but you know what in this film though um he absolutely does take uh, way too much of a beating for any normal uh human body to uh to absorb and, and not uh, have some effect right but uh, even even with that uh, in place, um, I suspended disbelief long enough just because Tony Jaa was doing it and and looking so good doing it. So I I, I would buy it for a little while. Um, maybe not uh, after like tables and bottles were coming down, but um, he sold it and he sold it so well. No, I I completely agree. I mean. Broken bottles and tables aside, because that one is definitely like film magic. And again, I'm not trying to bring realism into this, but <laughs> I do buy it more from Tony Jaa for a really simple reason that gets overlooked a lot. The training involved when you're learning Muay Thai, very similarly to if you're going to do traditional karate, it does strengthen bones. It yeah, does strengthen yeah. ligaments. And I feel like when people, especially when they watch older films and they complain, oh, the human body isn't capable of doing that. And it's like, well, your body isn't capable of doing that. That's not the <laughs> same. That's not the same thing as the human body isn't because the tie kicks, the shin bones and the elbows, and they're conditioned against the bamboo. They're conditioned to, to constantly have impacts in these areas. So I don't struggle to believe that if he did his blocks, when a, a chair leg is coming at him, for example, and it breaks, that he would be able to take it. Now, the, the blows to the head are slightly different. I just, like you said, I just suspend my disbelief for that. 
maybe he could, maybe he couldn't. Ultimately, I don't really care. It's enjoyable, and yeah, that's what yeah. matters. <laughs> but I do feel like people are like... Uh, you know, it's like what Joey said the other day. It's like people who've never trained a day in their lives suddenly turn into experts when they watch an action film. And in reality, they don't have a clue. You know what I mean? So it's like, just just enjoy it. Stop trying yeah. to overanalyze it. <laughs> and, and there's so much to enjoy in this film. Yeah, no, 100%. And I mean, the only scene that does kind of feel a little bit out of place kind of comes next, which is the scene where he catches up to Don. The second time, because obviously Don escapes right after they, they've done these fights. Oh, actually, no, before before I leave the scene behind, there is one other bit of this whole sequence that I really enjoy. And I was kind of disappointed that it didn't really go anywhere, which is probably why I didn't remember it. But right at the start of the film, when he's doing his uh, his equivalent of Carter's, basically, he's calling out like what all the moves are. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then later on in this fight, it kind of comes back, but it's not him calling out the moves. It's an old guy in the crowd. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The observer in the crowd, yeah. I, I loved that so much because they really leaned into the idea that there's a lot of foreigners who are cheering and are part of this crowd. They they do eventually cheer for him, and it's like they don't really care. It's like they just want to see a blood sport. But I love the idea that by seeing Ting, this kid from the country that has completely internalized the beliefs of his history and his tradition as a Thai fighter that some of the other people in the audience who had kind of just become a bit broken, get inspired by him and kind of get their spirit back. And annoyingly, they didn't really go anywhere with that. But I really like that scene of just seeing this old man sort of immediately know what he's doing. And he's like, he's doing the things that I learned when I was a kid that my grandpa taught me. And it's like, I just love little moments like that in in films yeah. in general, but it just really worked for me, you know? Yeah, and I think for the character, that was absolutely on task as well. You know, he he, he left the village to uh, to restore uh, the honor and um, and uh, carry with him the, the stuff that he learned. Uh, so uh, to be able to elicit that from at least one other person, uh, at least for the character, seemed true to form. So yeah, definitely a nice touch. Ah... Ah, so on IMDb, um, on the trivia page, which I was on earlier, I suddenly, as I was saying that, just just put two and two together. So that old guy was actually a man by the name of, because I want to get it right, Yotong Senanan, and he is an Ajahn in Mutai. He was a famous Mutai fighter back uh, in his day. Nice. So that actually makes that scene even better for me <laughs> nice. right now. That's a cool, that's a cool bit of the trivia. So the next sequence, it goes like really kind of disgusting, which sometimes I, I'm okay with, but it feels a little bit out of place in this film because it's the scene where you see what Don is doing outside of stealing relics. And he's got that, uh, originally I thought prostitute, but then it turns out that she's actually someone that's smuggling drugs for him, but he's also kind of taking advantage of her. And he ends up killing her. And I'm sort of like, that scene really sticks out in the rest of this film. It's like, did we really need that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. It was, it is, uh, took the, uh, took the viewer out of the story for a bit, for, for a sequence that seemed a bit much. Um, because Don up to that point was just like a, a, a petty thief. 
Um, yeah. And then we get to this scene and he's, uh, he's drugging her up, uh, you know, ODing her basically. And then he's about to rape her. And I'm, you know, so the character shift for him was so drastic. And, you know, he, he went from sort of like a, a comically likable thief at the beginning, uh, just, you know, out for scams to this dark underworld figure. I was like, yikes, man. Yeah, and see, the thing is, I wouldn't mind that so much, but, like, aside from the actual Mutai choreography, which is brutal, the rest of the film does not have that tone. Right, you know, right. It, it's, it's got a, I wouldn't say it's got a fun tone to it, even though I personally think it does, but I don't think that's what it was going for. But it, it's got a lighter tone to it than yeah. this is the reality of crime in the underworld, etc. And, like, this scene... And kind of what follows just feels so tonally different because you've just come from the fight. Then you have this bit, which, as I say, again, I feel like maybe there was a deleted scene or something because the woman that dies, uh, George and Moy, know her and they're like upset about it. But the audience is like, who's yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. I, it just it, I, I, I don't know. It just felt like we'd missed something there. But then we get the like this ridiculous over the top chase sequence that involves the the three wheeled cars, <laughs> the taxis, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it's such a funny sequence that a doesn't match at all with what we just saw. But then he kills half of them in like <laughs> yeah, he, he, I'm like, what's going on? Because he's like gone out of his way to not kill anyone. He doesn't even really want to hurt people, like you say. Most of the choreography, he's pushing them away, and then all of a sudden he like literally kills half the people chasing him and blows them up in a fiery explosion and then by the way in an explosion that seems way too large for those taxis (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah that explosion like it's so funny how quickly that escalates like they crash into these steel pipes and then two more crash into them but the first one flips and then lands on them and then the camera like zooms in on a tank of something and it goes hiss and then kaboom and i'm like Okay, <laughs> I, I I apologize to every 80s American film where a petrol tank gets shot by a gun and explodes because that at least has some level of <laughs> believability. I don't know what just happened there. <laughs> yeah, that's so uh, just for anybody who hasn't seen what we're talking about here, these these taxis are are three wheel um, motorcycles They're tricycles, motorized tricycles, basically with canopies. So they're they're not. They're not these massive uh, gas tank uh, <laughs> gas guzzlers that uh, would um, re- that would uh, bring about the explosion that you see uh, when they finally do crash. Because that explosion is probably <laughs> what you would see for like a an eighteen wheeler uh, tanker when it go when it goes up. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong; it's a cool little effect, and it, it you know it made me sort of go whoa, but for the wrong reasons. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, like you said, um, there are bodies in these taxis when they go up, and it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, it just, it just, even later on in the film, when Ting has every reason to start killing people, he still doesn't, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind it so much, but there's no visual, like, registration on Ting in the following scenes that those people have died. He's just like, oh well. You know, and it's <laughs> yeah, on task. Got to go. But um, 
Yeah, and then we get uh, another fight, which is against the the right hand man of the the evil gangster that's been uh, trying to manipulate Ting to keep fighting because he wants him to lose because he keeps betting on his opponents. Which is like, dude, this is a hundred percent a problem that you made for yourself. Stop, stop blaming it on Ting. <laughs> that guy is cool though, man. What we, his uh, his character straight up badass. What the uh, which one? Sorry, the the, the guy the... in the chair. No, 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 the side guy. Ah, oh, the side guy. Yeah, yeah. See, it's funny too because, like, you can tell earlier in the film that they're clearly going to have a fight because he just every time he looks at Tony Jaa, he looks like he either wants to kill him or he wants to like get him in the bedroom. But there's no in between <laughs> with that guy. Yeah. And it's just it just made me chuckle every time. He's like he's so OTT, and then of course. You find out why it's because, uh, of course, he's a bad guy fighter, so he can't fight honorably. He he drugs himself up before they have their big fight, which we are kind of skipping over some story stuff. But like we said, it's it's kind of irrelevant, really. Um, true, true. <laughs> it, well, it, it, it's 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 something you've heard a hundred times before. He gets forced into the fight because the gangster kidnapped his friends, and they're holding one of them as collateral. So yada yada yada. The only twist that I did like, which I'll, I'll get to in a second, is. When the fight happens, you assume that this is a legitimate fight, but you then find out after the fact that he was actually told he has to lose the fight as well, because obviously yeah. the guy wants yeah. to earn his money back. But you don't know that when you're watching it. So when you watch these two fight, I actually made a note that this doesn't feel like a fight. This feels like a WWE match. <laughs> right. Yeah, very good. But the funny thing is, is... Then when I found out that it was rigged, I was like, oh, it is a WWE match. <laughs> <laughs> because, like, aside from the fact all of a sudden Ting's kicks and punches have no power in them whatsoever and the guy can just stand there and take them and, like, push him off his feet. But he, like, sends Ting through the top rope. And I mean through, not over for the people listening. Like, the rope literally breaks from the impact, which is just nuts. But then... He lands on what would essentially be the announcer's table, and then the other guy literally smashes him through the table. Like, tell me that's not your average episode of the WWE. <laughs> no, they, uh, they, that sequence, um, is where he, uh, he does all those cool raps with the, with the rope and stuff, right? Yes. Yeah. And, uh, the, uh, the setup for that is one of those images where you're like, oh man, this is going to be amazing. Because you know we're getting we're getting this whole setup and he and he's wrapping up and he's he's putting up all, all the stuff, uh, paying uh, uh, homage to uh, the the traditions of, of the art and he looks so cool doing it and then you get that WWE match and and for a while you're like wait a minute did I miss something? Well, the funny thing with that that build up sequence of him doing the raps is I really like the the symmetry that they did by showing you the two fighters preparing because. He's taking yeah, yeah. it seriously. He's delivering his prayers. He's putting on the wraps. But the other guy is, is is preparing the needle. You know, it's like they both have the same reverence for their method of choice that it's shot as seriously. And it, it somehow works. And then the guy injects himself and he goes full roid rage mode, which is totally unnecessary because the fight was set up. But whatever. But. Like you say, you you then get that WWE moment because like the guy literally knocks out the referee as well, which is just made me chuckle so much. But yeah, I, I, it it is a fun scene and it leads into uh 
basically this fight and sort of everything that's happening around it also lets George sort of reconnect with his soul again and decide what actually is important to him. Is it trying to come back as the rich kid? Is it living in the city or is it honoring his village, his family and actually talking to his dad again? And sadly, he gets a sad ending, which I actually had totally forgotten about and kind of annoyed me. But in this moment, it's kind of when he gets his redemption and he doesn't want the money anymore for for setting his friend up, essentially. And he actually starts helping Ting fight off the guys that are going to kill them. But we also finally get to see Ting unleash because this is where he just goes nuts for the rest of the film. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the uh, the uh, the guy in the the ring with him, the 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 Roy guy. Later on, well after the film, uh, there's a uh, there's a fight league, the One Championship League. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but um, there's a a fighter in there, Rod Tang, who reminded me of this character so much because uh, Rod Tang, when he's in when he's in the ring, um, he's got such a flair to him, and he's he's got such a uh, uh, a dynamic. Uh, way of moving around the ring and he takes hits um to his head and he he absorbs them and he he kind of uh invites uh his opponent to uh to you know to take shots at him and then he he kind of shakes them off it's it's just a, a funny um remembrance that uh when I saw Rod Tank the first couple of times that it, it called back this guy cuz they he the way that the this guy took the hits um looks exactly like the way that Rod Tang takes the hits in the ring now. It's really cool. Nice. Uh, no, I'm not familiar with that. Um, I used to watch a lot of UFC and Strike Force, like back in those days. Like I, I said, Strike Force, which should age me. But um, <laughs> I, I don't watch any of it anymore. Um, my, my opinions on that is that it's all just become spectacle and ego more so than the fighters themselves. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. But... Uh, we also get, in my opinion, the most iconic shot that everybody knew. Like when YouTube did eventually come out, this was always the scene. When I see people make fan art, this is one of the, the biggest things I've seen done, which is that during the fight with the guards and when they're trying to escape from the situation that they're in, Ting falls into some flammable liquid. And then a few minutes later, an explosion <laughs> happens. And Tony Jaa being the badass that he is, even though his legs are on fire, that doesn't stop him from fighting and doing some really cool acrobatic kicks, which means you've essentially just given him flaming legs with which to kick you in the face with. Rather than him suffering any burns, he just powers through it and uses <laughs> them as weapons. And uh, those were, again, that was Tony Jaa doing that stunt with his legs on fire. I know, I know. That's why, in my opinion, that's why it became so iconic, because you could tell it's him. I mean, he does that spinning butterfly twist kick thing that, again, at the time was something we didn't see much of, whilst his legs are on fire, which is still definitely not something we see of. And then he does a, a massive knee strike, and the guys that he hits, it's like, it almost like you're watching a fantasy film now, where it's, you know, like they set the swords <laughs> on fire or something, and I would love to see Tony Jar in like a, a like a fantasy, high fantasy effects label, you know, effects riddled production like Dungeons and Dragons type thing. Because Tony Jar could just be his own effects, you know, he would just be flying through people with swords. Um, because that's what we're going to mention later. Although he spends most of this film fighting unarmed, it would be a mistake to think he cannot fight with weapons. <laughs> right, right, right. I, I'm a uh 
constantly blown away by stunt people that do fire work uh, just uh, because that fire is literally on you. Uh, you are on fire and it's right there. Uh, and if you've ever stood next to a campfire, you know how hot that is just, you know, that alone. And now you've got the fire all over you and then you've got to you've got to do you've got to coordinate all of these kicks with with uh, with stunt people. More power to them, because I don't know that I could ever even think about attempting that. No, I agree. I don't know how they would have done it either, because I know that obviously in a Hollywood production, you have that special gel that yep. essentially yep. can protect you for a very limited amount of time. But I don't think a lot of Asian countries use that, and they certainly wouldn't have back then. And I... I have this horrible image of basically they just like put some water on his leg and we're like, go, you know, it's because like, <laughs> I, you know, when you hear the stories of how some of these things were made, the answer is usually what's the simplest thing you can think of. That's probably how they did it. How did they do a shot where someone's legs were on fire? Well, they let them on fire, did the shot and then immediately <laughs> ran over to put them out. Oh, okay. That, uh, that, that, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, got better them than me, that's for sure. Well, it's like, um, I remember my granddad used to love telling me, uh, you know, when I was much younger, that, you know, the difference between uh, a Hollywood production and a Hong Kong production is that when you want to get a shot from someone, you know, 100 feet up on the top of a skyscraper, the American production will bring in a rig, bringing safety harnesses. It will cost hundreds of thousands of dollars in budget, and it will be an automatic camera. And, you know, the Hong Kong production will tie a rope around a guy and just dangle him there. <laughs> and, you know, it's just it's, it feels like that is the sort of answer here, you know. All respect for those guys, the way that they did it on the budget that they did it with. The other the other uh, funny shot, again, you know, where we were saying about suspending disbelief is after he puts himself out by, uh, you know, jumping into water. He then does this massive, huge leap, which is, again, visually impressive. And it, he knees a guy on a motorbike in the face, but the guy on the motorbike has a motorbike helmet on, and he somehow hits him with such force that the motorbike helmet snaps Pops clean off, yeah. in half <laughs> and explodes off of him like a grenade. And I died of laughter. <laughs> yeah, it's a powerful strike. Like I say, we then get... It, it basically just flows from one fight scene into the next, where... They go to try and get the head of Ong back, and this is when Ting just goes full like beast mode. He takes out the outside guards. It based pretty much of one hit because this is again something that you were alluding to earlier with the way he moves. I think what makes watching Tony Jaws specifically his version of Mutai so enjoyable is even when the choreography is dragged out and longer, his movements feel surgical. He's not hitting someone 10 times in the face and they're not reacting. He, If he hits someone in the face with the back of his elbow, they drop. If somebody doesn't, it's because it either didn't connect or they blocked it or he hit them somewhere else, etc. And I feel like this last moment where he fights people that are on a much higher level works as an escalation of that because, again, he now has to work that little bit harder. But also, it means he stops holding back. And the fact that he then picks up essentially a stick and demonstrates how good he is with a staff, and then yeah. it, it leads it to uh, a split. You know, they split the staff, and then he uses the two sticks, and then that he makes like makeshift tonfers. I mean, all of that, in my opinion, is worth seeing. Like, I thought that 
I'd seen like the highlight of this film against the three fighters, but th- this final stretch where he starts using improvised weapons was just like, yeah, I remember now why Tony Jaa was the big thing. Like, <laughs> I, I, I immediately just wanted to grab the protector and Ongback too, and a bunch of others, and just keep keep the train going. You know, the shift in intensity for uh, Tony Jaa from the beginning of the film to to these last sequences with the weapons and stuff is 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 180 degrees and it's so uh, amazing to watch because he is so fully into uh the fights uh at the end and he's just unleashing he's he's like um in, in the beginning uh he was that rubber band that was stretched and then he unleashes and then uh you know somebody drops uh but in, in these later sequences um it's just him untethered and it's so satisfying to watch well i think from a from a narrative point of view it works because by this point i think the audience is ready for it oh yeah you 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 know what he's capable of in inverted commas you also now know that he was holding back in his uh in his staged fight and more importantly from a from a morality point of view the criminals went back on their word like he only agreed to do this because they said that that would they would give him back their statue and that wasn't true and now it's sort of like from the point of view of are you the person that has the moral high ground as far as the character is concerned yes i do because they said they would do something they went back on their word so now i can essentially cause them a lot of pain and i'm free of karma repercussions yeah 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 for sure and like you say, the actual choreography is amazing. The the amount of different ways that Tony Jaa could demonstrate what he's able to do. I love the fact that so much of the weapon stuff feels like it was improvised rather than pre-rehearsed. Sure. And then you still get some fantastic hand-to-hand fights. You also get two really, really wincing moments where people get their uh, bones broken. Uh, one is Ham- Hamley's arm, which uh, yeah. I was sort of like, ooh, and I thought like that that looked pretty good, but then in re- in sort of retribution, Ting just walks straight up to the guy, beats him up, picks up his leg, and just snaps it. And I was like, <laughs> oh, that looked like it. well, oh, that made me really go ow, because yeah, they, they they did a really good job with that particular break effect. Yeah, the, uh, these guys did such a nice job with this, and uh, credit to the uh, the guys that edited this too, man. So well done. No, I agree. Like that is one of the things that I really like is like the editing is really good. And, you know, shout outs to the actual choreographer, Pana Rithikrai, because yes, we're giving Tony Jar and his team a lot of cred. But again, like I said at the very beginning, everybody has to be on their A game to get a, a production like this because the editing has to be good. The rest of the actors have to give you reasons to care, and they definitely do. And without good choreography without good stunt coordination and without the actual stunt team being able to sell getting smashed in the face and being able to react at the same level of intensity that tony jar is putting in it doesn't work like this is something that i've tried to explain to people so many times when you know somebody that is really big in the east comes over to the west and their first film especially in the in the older era it looks like rubbish and the reason is, is because as much as I hate to say it, the stunt people they were working with just didn't have that same level yeah, of yeah. experience or ability in some cases, because that was not what was being done. And, you know, when you've got someone like Benny Arquides and Richard Norton, 
who were used to working with the Hong Kong people and they're just go, 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 go. And then they had to work with the people that worked over in Hollywood or people that worked in wherever they were shooting in, in Europe, maybe. And it's a such a different beast. And they just, you know, it, it made them look so slow and mechanical, but it was because <laughs> they just, the stunt people just couldn't work with their speed, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, this is this particular film will, will show um, uh, what's capable when everybody's on the same page. Yeah, no, I agree. And then obviously, you could say we get a rematch between Ting and the Roids guy, which is so funny because he tries to fight him without his drugs, which doesn't go well for him, as you'd expect. So he then in- injects himself with like a dozen of these, whatever, whatever it is he's injecting himself with at once. But also, because I don't know, like, because I wasn't sure on this, maybe you could clear this up for me. But does Ting take the herbs that the monk gave him right at the beginning? Because he, he eats something. And I assume that yeah. it's the herbs. So it, it was like, and um, that actually was never. It was never fully explained what they were, but the monk gave it to him in the beginning. and said these will help you. So I don't know what they were. I don't know what 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 um, effects they uh, uh, conveyed to him when he took them. But uh, I guess it was enough. I think they were sensu beans. Oh, okay. I, I don't know what those are. Ah, see now that joke would work a lot more if you knew, if you watched Dragon Ball. <laughs> oh, oh, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, because genuinely, when he when he ate it, it was like he suddenly had hit all of his stamina, energy, and like all of his wounds seemed to just leave him, which is basically what sensu beans do in Dragon Ball. So I was like, oh, it's a sensu bean. <laughs> that's funny. I remember but, those in uh, Dragon Ball. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's that's basically the end. And then you know, like I said, unfortunately, Humlai. I, I feel like, again, it's because it's got to be this story of redemption and the karma's got to catch up with you. But basically, the way that they all get saved is the big bad evil guy who now has a gun, he shoots Ting with all of his Muay skills are not really going to stack up against a bullet ripping through your shoulder. Because uh, luckily, it was a shoulder wound, like in every yeah, action yeah. movie. But uh, yeah, the, the, the big head of uh, the symbol of their gods essentially falls over and crushes the old guy but unfortunately hum Lai bites it as well yep. but not before he gets to give a good farewell speech and tells the girl that he's with that she should study hard and get a good job and basically asks ting to send his repentance to his father and you know he wants to be remembered as hum Lai, the member of the village and i liked it but also i was just sort of like oh really again yeah, yeah. it's like it, it it worked emotionally because I was sad, but it was sort of like I, I I don't know. It just much like the scene with Don and his uh and and the woman. It just it, it just kind of felt very different to the rest of the film. The actress that plays Moy gets to have a big breakdown scene and scream her head off, which is always nice, I suppose, if you're an actor. But it just sort of fades out and is, isn't addressed like that. That's basically yeah. the end. <laughs> yeah, I I. I... Like you, I was hoping that you would uh, be able to go back home, you know, and, and complete that redemption arc for himself. But so, it, yeah, it felt a little darker than it had to be. Yeah, no, 100%. And uh, that is basically the end of the film. So is there anything more you'd like to add uh, before we, uh, I guess, wrap up in summary? No, I, I mean, if uh, if you haven't seen it, you know, put yourself back 20 years ago and try to watch it with some fresh eyes uh without um 
uh, getting clouded with what's come uh, since then, because uh, like like uh, Scott was saying, a lot of the stuff that you'll see in Ongbok presaged lots of the things that are going on in, in film now and uh, appreciate what Tony Jaa does with his body uh, in this film. Because, uh, you know, when you when you watch it for the first time, man, it was uh, it was amazing and new and uh, uh, destructive and impactful and super, super cool. So. You know, uh, if you if you haven't been able to to see it, uh, head back uh, 20 years, throw it on, sit back and, uh, you know, don't uh, don't get caught up in the the, the simplicity of the story. Uh, let yourself um, let the impact of, of Muay Thai and Muay Brand wash over you and uh, and turn you into a Tony Jaa fan. Yeah. And I'll and I'll be honest, if you. I imagine most people listening to this will have seen it, but if you're like us and you haven't seen it for a while, put it on your list to rewatch because I think like, well, both of us actually have said we'd forgotten a lot of it and we've forgotten just how good it actually is because again, we have kind of, in my opinion, you take these stars for granted and you, you know, you watch them as their careers go on and, you know, other people come in and replace them and some people come back and go. And when you go back and you watch the films that made them have this massive cultural impact and you go, oh, yeah, I remember why now. This is fucking awesome. <laughs> definitely, definitely. So, yeah, uh, that is pretty much going to be it. Uh, thank you for listening to this episode on the House of Flying Knees to the Face. <laughs> Uh, and once again, thank you to Jeff for coming on. I, I hope you've enjoyed it. We we definitely talked a lot about how much we uh, both love Tony Jaa. So that was nice. Thank you again for having me. It was, it was great uh, connecting with you uh, finally and uh, uh, just talking shop with a, a fellow uh, martial arts uh, action fan. Um, uh, you do a wonderful job with your show. So best of luck to you. And again, thank you for having me. It's It's, a, it's an honor to be on the show. Thank you very much for agreeing to come on. Uh, as I say to everyone, it's all, it's always nice when people want to. Uh, I don't think the day will ever come that I won't be pleasantly surprised when someone says, yes, I would like to. I, I, I'm, I'm a pessimist by default, so I always get pleasantly surprised. <laughs> awesome. Continue. Best of luck. Where can people find you on the social medias if they want to come and bug you or, or listen to you who don't follow you on those things? Because... I know that uh, I know people listen to the show, but perhaps they don't know, like I didn't for a while, that you are you are hiding on social media, like I am. <laughs> um, if you if you want to follow, um, I'm, uh, you can probably catch me most of the time on Instagram, Kung Fu Driving Podcast, Jeff Vita on Twitter, J E O F V I T A, but I'm not as active on there. Uh, I am on Facebook, the Kung Fu Driving Podcast page. Um, otherwise, you can catch the podcast anywhere. Uh, podcasts are distributed so spotify uh apple google uh amazon music the alexa uh but uh yeah if if you like action if you like talking to the people that create the action if you like uh going behind the scenes and uh see what uh martial arts contributes to that action if you want to talk if you want to hear from instructors uh that uh craft some of the cool martial arts action that goes into some of the films that you enjoy swing by the Kung Fu driving podcast and hang out with me and uh Let's kick it like Kung Fu. Yep. And I'm going to leave it with a joke that only people that listen to your show are going to get. Your craft Maga may be good, but mine is better. <laughs> awesome.
Uh, with that, guys, I'm going to hand you over to the me of the future, and he'll let you know what's coming next. If I've if I've planned this out how my brain thinks it will, then you should be pretty close to the 50th episode of the show, which is going to be a pretty good one, because I've already filmed it! <laughs> but until then, guys, I'll see you in a minute. All right, there you go. That was the conversation. I hope that you enjoyed it, and I gotta give once again thanks to Jeff for coming onto the show. It was fantastic to have you, and I hope that we will have him back sometime in the future. So, this was episode 49 of the show, if you can believe it, I know. Had we not had some problems during the first year of the show, we would probably be much further along, and technically speaking, we are, because not every episode that I released in the past had a number. I don't tend to do that anymore, even when I do release quote-unquote bonus episodes, unless they genuinely are like a different type of episode, I will pretty much give them a number. Now, as a result of that, I wanted to do something not special as such, but I really wanted to pick like a big film for episode 50, and I've had the 50th episode of this show recorded for quite some time, because again, I thought we were going to get to episode 50 a bit quicker than we actually did, so apologies to my guest for that week, which is uh, Ewan Patterson, because, yeah, he, he and I had this conversation a long time ago, but hopefully he's not too fussed and that he's very excited for the fact that you guys will finally be able to hear episode 50, which is myself and Ewan Patterson, who you may be familiar with from the website What Culture. you may be familiar with his work on Screen Rant, you also might be familiar with his own podcast, which is We Love Dad Movies, and the two of us got together to talk about one of, if not the biggest, action franchise around, and that is 2014's John Wick. So I hope you're excited to hear that. That will be the next episode. Thank you very much for listening to this one, and I shall see you guys, hopefully, for that fantastic conversation on the next one. On the action